You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to Talk of the Bay. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Tonight on Talk of the Bay, I'm joined by Jeffrey Rossman, Ph.D. He's the Director of Life Management at Canyon Ranch in Lenox, Massachusetts. His new book is The Mind-Body Mood Solution, The Breakthrough Drug-Free Program for Lasting Relief from Depression. And you can call in and ask the doctor some questions at 476-2800 or one 800 655 5877. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you, Rick. Jeff, uh, one of the things I really like about this book is it's really a synthesis of a lot of different, across a, a to me, what is a breathtaking uh, range of disciplines. And one of the things I like most about it is that um, you use this term, uh, psychosynthesis. Is that Where did that term come from? Psychosynthesis is actually an approach to psychotherapy and human development that originated in the middle of the 20th century. And it's really a psycho-spiritual approach to human development. Um, I trained in psychosynthesis back in the 1980s, and it's really informed my work uh, throughout my career. Now, this book is is called The Mind-Body-Mood Solution, and you... speak in the introduction that your your audience is people with mild to moderate depression uh to actually to be honest i think anybody could benefit from reading this book just by virtue uh it seems like there's a lot of life improving um techniques in here but you have experiences with depression yourself and that's what brought you to this book that's really true um back in my early 20s uh i suffered a bout of depression um at that time, I was working in a hospital, and one week out of every three, I worked the night shift. And working the night shift really threw my sleep-wake cycle into chaos. And as a result, after a few months of that, um, my mood really took a dive. And at that time, I really wanted to find some ways to be able to help myself to feel better. And I looked into nutrition. Um, I got into a regular exercise program. I looked at what was happening with my sleep and did some things to be able to bring my sleep-wake cycle into a better rhythm. Um, I also got into psychotherapy and began to explore what was important to me and the future direction that I wanted to take in my life. So it really was a catalyst for my own exploration. And really, it became the foundation for the program that is embodied in the book. You know, um, one of the things you said it was a catalyst, but depression really is. We all experience pain when we put our finger in a burning flame. We experience flame, pain so that we will remove our finger from the burning flame and cease the physical damage. And I think depression is really very much the same kind of signal to us. It's a signal of uh, what the Hopi Indians called koya niskatsi, life out of balance. Rick, that's exactly right. And when we view depression as a signal 
from somewhere deep inside of us that we need to pay attention to how our life is out of balance, then we can actually take the depression and in a very empowering way make some positive changes. Um, more and more, depression in our culture is seen as a disease. And for some people who have serious clinical depression, I think that that's an accurate representation of of depression, that it is indeed uh, a physiological disorder, and there are physical markers that go along with that type of severe clinical depression. However, there are many people who are suffering from mild or moderate levels of depression who really don't fit that picture of having a physiological disorder. And for those people, uh, an approach looking at what's this depressed mood trying to tell me? Um, is there something that I can do, either with how I take care of my body, or is there something that I can do in terms of how I'm thinking, or a step that I can take in my life that will help to lift my mood and create a more fulfilling life? You know, um, one of the things that big changes that happened back in, I think it was 1997, was when there was a, a when the, it was all of a sudden allowed to directly advertise prescription medicines to patients on TV. And this has really created a new kind of culture where we all think we diagnose ourselves by based on commercials we see on TV, which isn't necessarily a particularly healthy way to approach it. Rick, when that change was enacted, there was an explosion of, uh, of increased prescribing of antidepressant medication. Uh, that change worked very, very well for the drug companies to be able to essentially sell antidepressants to the American public. Many, many people have been helped by antidepressants, mm -hmm. and I am grateful that they exist. However, many people who are suffering from a depressed mood uh, would ask for an antidepressant and think that this is the cure for my problem, when really it is treating a symptom, but it's not getting at the underlying cause. And for those people, taking a deeper look is what's needed. You know, one of the statistics you quote in this book, and it just was shocking to me, was that the drug companies spend far more on advertising their drugs than they do on research and development. Well, uh, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> drugs are big business mm. in our country, and they, they can provide uh, miraculous uh, treatments. However, they're not necessarily a cure for depression. Part of the problem is embedded in our language. Mm. Okay? The word depressed. You know, you or I might say, you know, I'm feeling depressed. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're suffering from a physiological disorder of depression. Um, and I think that that creates some confusion, that people describe their mood uh, as depressed, and they have then seen commercials for for medication, for depression, and think, well, that's what I need, when really they might benefit from looking at, well, what are these depressed feelings in response to? Um, is there a relationship in my life that is causing some distress for me? Um, am I eating a poor diet? Am I sedentary? Am I not getting outside enough? There are many other reasons that can contribute to depression other than a physiological disease. Now, if you have any questions for Jeffrey Rossman, 
you can reach us at 476-2800 or 1-800-655-5877. Jeff, one of the things that I love about this book are these tests that you put in here. So talk about creating the tests, and you even put the CESD in, and explain what the CESD is. The CESD is a depression assessment. It's a 20-question depression scale that was created by the Center for Epidemiological Studies uh, to ascertain whether someone is depressed and to what degree they're depressed. It's useful for someone who is going to use the program in the book to get a baseline level of how depressed they actually are. If they are severely depressed, it's likely that they'll need more help than they can get simply from the book. It would be very beneficial to work with a therapist, someone who can provide support and guidance, along with the information that's in the book. Now, the information that's in the book, I think, is really just a great guide for healthy living in, in, in general, not just if you're depressed. And you start off with uh, eating and, and um, the uh, Japanese proverb about food and medicine. Well, this, uh, this proverb suggests that let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. And for thousands of years, we've known that food can help to heal ailments that we have. We also know that food can make us sick, and we're seeing that more and more over these last few decades with the obesity epidemic and the epidemic of diabetes. Um, So depression is also a condition that can be fueled by the food that we eat. And with a change in our diet, we can help to enhance our mood. This is especially the case for people who may be eating a diet that's high in refined foods, junk foods, sugar, trans fats, which unfortunately is the standard American diet, uh, the abbreviation of which is SAD, the SAD diet, and it really does contribute to this epidemic of depression that we have. When people can change to a whole foods diet, one that is low in refined foods, low in sugar, um, high in omega-3 fatty acids, often there's an improvement in mood. Now, you talk that about diet being responsible for inflammation. So I'd like you to explain a little bit what you mean by the word inflammation and how that affects us, our, our mood. Inflammation is a reaction of the body, of our human body, to foreign bodies. It's a reaction of the immune system to germs, bacteria, viruses, chemicals that are perceived by the immune system to be foreign. When we eat a diet that is high in chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers, uh, artificial ingredients, that can cause an inflammatory response. Now, when we have an inflammatory response, what happens? Uh, We may feel kind of tired, spacey, have difficulty concentrating. Think about the last time that you had a cold or the flu your body is mounting an inflammatory response. Now, if you're eating a diet that is high in chemicals, you may be having a low-grade inflammatory response, not necessarily knowing that that's what's causing the feelings that you're having. And you might say to yourself, oh, I feel kind of logy. I feel lethargic, um, spacey. I can't concentrate. I must be depressed. Well, taking a look at diet may help you to get to the source of some of those feelings. 
Now, you talk about eating in neurotransmitters and diet in neurotransmitters. Tell us about the relationship between uh, what we eat and how it makes us think, which is fascinating. Well, our body takes the food that we eat and it converts it into the neurochemicals that we need to maintain a healthy mood. So the protein that you eat uh, at, at dinner tonight gets converted while you're sleeping into neurotransmitters that will help you to feel positive and help you to think clearly tomorrow. So the neurotransmitters that are uh, responsible for a healthy positive mood, serotonin and GABA, which give us a feeling of calmness, relaxation, um, dopamine, norepinephrine, those are the enlivening neurotransmitters, the activating neurotransmitters. The food that we eat gets converted into those neurotransmitters and by paying attention to diet and combining foods in an appropriate way, we can help our body to create those neurotransmitters that will help us to feel positive. It's unfortunate that people who are eating a poor diet don't necessarily know that that's what's causing their poor mood and they reach for a medication in order to manipulate their neurotransmitters when they could do it more naturally with food. I'm guessing that, that uh, Twinkies and cheeseburgers are not high on the uh, neurotransmitter enhancing uh, diet list. Uh, no, Rick, I think you, <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head. That's part of the sad diet. And uh, we want to uh, stay away from those foods. Uh, we, we do want to look at sometimes uh, supplements, and, and you talk a little bit about that. Uh, vitamins D and B seem to be particularly important. They are important. Um, many people are deficient in vitamin D, particularly in northern climates. Um, here in, in Santa Cruz, uh, there may be less vitamin deficiency than back where I live in Massachusetts, where virtually everyone is vitamin D deficient in the winter unless they're taking supplements. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is that uh, vitamin D supplements are inexpensive, they're safe, and we can take uh, vitamin D supplements uh, at fairly significant levels in order to bring our vitamin D levels up to the therapeutic range. I've, I have one patient in particular who presented to me uh, this was about two years ago, and she was terribly depressed. She was clinically depressed, and I was really worried about her because um, I did not see how she was going to be able to function in her role. She was actually a nurse, and I was concerned about how she could perform her, her job functions. Um, we talked a bit, and we came up with an overall approach that included a change in diet, uh, increasing her exercise, which had been virtually nil, and I also suggested that she get into psychotherapy because um, I, I th thought that she needed some support and um, some guidance in making the changes. Well, she went home and she, uh, she didn't follow up on my recommendation for psychotherapy, but she did start taking vitamin D. I saw her again six months later and she looked like a different person. And she was bright, she was enthusiastic, she was functioning quite well in her role. And what she told me was that she attributed her recovery to the vitamin D supplements that she was taking. Now, one of the things I like about the way this book is written is that what you do is you show us the problems, 
you give us some scientific explanation and the stud and bring up studies and i think that you know the problems and the solutions i mean gosh you mean che- eating cheeseburgers and twinkies doesn't make me happy? I mean, <laughs> we should all know that. But what you do is a good job of showing us some kind of common sense and then bringing in a lot of really interesting scientific studies that back up the common sense. And I think this is a really interesting technique for writing this book. You also do it really quickly so that this book is very easy to read. This is not like a book that's forbidding in any way. It's kind of fun to read. You can zip right through it in a day or two, and, it, and you can – you have a lot of tests, a lot of breaks. So talk about just as you created this book, talk about a little bit about, you know, the your design for this book and making it like digestible. Well, when I created it, I thought to myself, uh, what would I use? And <laughs> I have to tell you that I have read a lot of self-help books. And if it's too complicated, I can't do it. If it's mm-hmm. too dense, I can't get through it. So I wanted it to be as um, engaging as it possibly could be, and I want it to be as practical as it could be. Um, It's designed to give people some very actionable steps that they can take. And yes, Rick, it's true that if we're going to invest our time and energy into making a dietary change or getting involved in exercise or getting outside into the sunlight, most of us will be more willing to do it if we're convinced by a little bit of scientific evidence that it's likely to help us. So I did include some science. Uh, My wife cautioned me to not put too much science in here because many people would be lost by that. So I tried to find a balance between uh, scientific research and a style that would be very engaging and and accessible for people. I I really think you hit the sweet spot with that. Now, this book is divided into two parts. We're talking right now about the part about the body, treating your body first. And once we start getting, get ourselves eating right, um, then we need to look at exercise. And you suggest we exercise in the morning. Well, there are a couple of good things about exercising in the morning. One is that it gets your energy flowing. A lot of people who are depressed find that the morning is a particularly difficult time. They may feel tired, uh, not fully refreshed in the morning, and exercise gets your blood flowing, it gets oxygen to your brain. Um, It stimulates the production of neurotransmitters, uh, the feel-good chemicals, and it's also empowering. When you get your exercise done in the morning, you get a feeling of accomplishment, a feeling of satisfaction. You've done something on your own behalf. The other good thing about exercising in the morning is that you know it's done. Mm. You're less likely to be uh, detoured by other types of things that pop up in the course of your day. Now, having said that, Rick, I want to let listeners know that the best time to exercise is the time that you can do it. <laughs> so, yes, yes I, I recommend exercising in the morning, but if the morning is not going to work for you, if you have kids who you need to get off to school, or if you need to get to work really early in the morning, then by all means, do the exercise when you can. For some people, taking their lunch hour to exercise is going to be just what they need. Um, many people find that the most convenient time of their day is right in the middle, when they can put on a pair of sneakers and take a very brisk walk at lunchtime and then come back feeling refreshed for their afternoon. The added benefit of walking in the middle of the day is that you can get some bright sunshine. Mm -hmm. 
and we'll talk about the importance of that in, in a, a few moments. Now, one of the things you suggest also, I think this is a great idea, is creating a spreadsheet of what you of what of your exercise, and, and I think this functions in a couple of ways. One, it can, helps you keep track. And the other, uh, I find, is that if you have a long row, like a week's worth of exercise, and you said, and well, you've written down, I did broke, walk two miles, I did 20 push-ups, I did this, and then you have that empty spot staring you in the morning, you're really much more likely to get in there and get that spot filled. It's kind of a self-perpetuating uh, help. That's absolutely right, Rick. Uh, when you make an appointment with yourself, mm-hmm. uh, you're likely to keep it. And, <laughs> right. You know, exercise can be particularly daunting mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's feeling depressed. And I like to stack the deck in as strong a way as possible to get yourself moving. Mm-hmm. And that chart that you just mentioned is one ideal way to do it. You have the space staring at you in the morning, and then. Once you've done your exercise and you've done your exercise, say, for several days in a row, you can take a look back at what you've entered into your chart and feel a real empowered sense of accomplishment. You know, also, too, it, it, it helps, I think, sometimes to before you exercise, when you're getting dressed or just waking up, to imagine yourself in that exercise, in the middle of that run you're going to do, in the middle of those things you're going to do, because that prepares you, and, and I think it uh, propels you into into the the world of exercising. That's terrific. Uh, when you do that positive visualization that you just described, it helps to get your juices flowing. It primes the pump. And again, sometimes people find that it's difficult to exercise. If you look at most of the people in our country, they are not exercising. Mm-hmm. This is not necessarily easy to do. But visualizing, like you just recommended, is one way to be able to uh, get your enthusiasm up for exercise and what I tell people is even if you are not feeling like exercise if you just give yourself at least five minutes just promise yourself that you'll spend at least five minutes exercising what invariably happens is that people get going for those five minutes they're on the treadmill or they're uh, swimming for the five minutes and lo and behold they start feeling better and they want to keep going once people make exercise a regular part of their life they can't imagine living without it and and it really helps uh, get your neurotransmitters talk about the the physiology of that how it how it actually fights depression it's really extraordinary um, we've been fortunate over the last couple of decades to have some fascinating research on the effect of exercise on the brain and what we find is that regular aerobic exercise causes an increase in serotonin which is that mood-enhancing neurotransmitter, which is being boosted by all of the new generation of antidepressants. So Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Serazone, uh, Lexapro, they're all boosting levels of serotonin. You can do the same thing with exercise. Um, Exercise also boosts levels of GABA, another calming neurotransmitter, as well as dopamine and norepinephrine, which are invigorating neurotransmitters. In addition, exercise causes an increase in new brain cells. And this is a finding that we just discovered in the last decade, that when you engage in regular aerobic exercise, your body actually is stimulated to produce more brain cells 
very exciting discovery. And this is something they never thought happened. They thought once you got your brain cells, that was it. And when you were drinking, you were killing them. And <laughs> so this is, uh, uh, you mean six miles can maybe make up for a few of those college six packs. <laughs> uh, exactly. This is a very in- encouraging discovery for all of us who began, who, who thought that from the, the age of 25, it was all downhill. The truth is that our brain does give birth to new brain cells. And in particular, there's a... Uh, a profusion of new brain cells in a brain region called the hippocampus. Um, the hippocampus is one brain region which in severely depressed patients is shrunken. And what we know is that exercise can actually help to uh, reverse that shrinkage of the hippocampus that comes with severe depression. And this is something I want people who are suffering from clinical depression to know that if you can get yourself exercising, this can be a very powerful way to pull yourself out of depression. There have been numerous studies of people with serious clinical depression who were able to use exercise to help them to get better. And, and most, and there are also a number of studies you cite that show that exercise makes it more likely you'll keep up depression at bay. That's exactly right. One particular study done by James Blumenthal at Duke uh, compared the effect of exercise with the effect of Zoloft. And what they found was that after six months, uh, there was an equivalent improvement in the people taking Zoloft and the people uh, who were exercising. Now, And this was three uh, bouts of exercise for 30 minutes each time. So we're not talking about a dramatic amount of exercise, just three times a week for 30 minutes each time. Now, even though the the results were equivalent after six months, when they followed up after a year, the relapse rate was much lower for the people who were exercising than the people taking Zoloft. And what we believe is that the people who were exercising made a fundamental change in their lifestyle. They found a way an empowering way to be able to boost their own mood, and it was more effective in helping them to stay free of depression than drugs. Now, um, in addition to exercise, it also helps to get some sleep. Um, you talk, Tell us about uh, neurotransmitters and the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. I well, like the fear center of the brain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> when the amygdala uh, gets activated in response to a threatening stimulus, uh, we can become frightened. And uh, what we know is that people who are sleep deprived uh, tend to have a jumpy amygdala. Hmm. That, and this, this is one reason why after a night or two or three of poor sleep, we might feel more irritable. Um, what's happening is that uh, the part of our brain that's responsible for a stress response for an alarm response is sensitized. And the parts of our brain that are more uh, thoughtful and able to process events in a more methodical way uh, are not uh, linked in quite as well. Now, what we know is that Americans are sleeping significantly less than we were even 50 years ago that on average, Americans are sleeping an hour less than we did 50 years ago. During those same 50 years, there's been a dramatic rise in the incidence of depression. Over these last 50 years, the rate of depression has been doubling every 10 years. And I don't think it's a coincidence that with less sleep, uh, more and more people are becoming depressed. 
Um, you also talk about the importance of, of light. And, and I guess, and I never knew this, that there are receptors in, the, in our brain that require a certain kind of bright light that you can only get from sunlight. And it's also best to get that sunlight in the morning too, isn't it? That's exactly right. We do have specialized receptors in the brain which are stimulated when bright light comes in through the eyes. Uh, it sends a signal through the optic nerve to those receptors in the brain and it signals them to produce serotonin. Now, as I mentioned, serotonin is one of those feel-good neurotransmitters that helps us to feel calm and relaxed. And this kind of makes sense when you think about uh, where we've come from. Over the course of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, humans have lived outdoors. Walking a lot, exercising. Walking a lot, <laughs> exercising, lifting heavy objects, carrying water. And what's our modern lifestyle like? Most of us are spending a good deal of time indoors. We're not getting outside, particularly not in the wintertime in northern climates. So we're lacking sunlight. We're lacking um, exercise. And it's no wonder that many people's mood is taking a dive. We evolved under conditions of being outdoors and active. And that's what we need to do to stay healthy. Now, you talk about an artificial solution, a light box. This is very interesting, and they're not too expensive. <laughs> no, they're not. Um, you can get a good quality light box for under $200, and it approximates the intensity of sunlight. It's not quite as much. Um, right now, in this room that, that we're in, it, we probably have about 100 lux. That's the intensity of the light in this room that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's the intensity in most indoor situations, 100 lux. If you're outdoors on a bright, sunny day, the intensity of light is 10,000 to 100,000 lux. Wow. So it is much, much, much brighter outdoors. Sometimes we don't realize it because our eyes have a remarkable ability to adapt to changing light intensities. However, um, if we are indoors in 100 lux brightness, um, our mood is affected by that. Mm. So a high-intensity light fixture or light box can deliver 10,000 lux of light. And if you sit in front of that light fixture for 30 minutes to 60 minutes a day, it can give you that supply of light that you need in order to maintain a positive mood. For the last 25 years, we've used bright light as a treatment for seasonal affective disorder, which is basically seasonal depression or winter depression. What we now know through research over the last 10 years is that bright light is also effective for people who have non-seasonal depression, for people who have a low mood at other times of the year. Now, you, you conclude the part of working with your body with the power of breath. And, and so talk, one of the things I love about this is your phrase that you're, you use your breath to inhabit, not inhibit. That's a really great, that just speaks volumes. Well, um, from the first moment of life, we're breathing. And the way that we breathe has a profound influence on our mood. When we breathe naturally, fully, slowly, we experience a feeling of calmness and relaxation. Now, unfortunately, many people inhibit their breathing. 
They don't necessarily do this on purpose, but over the course of life, they have become conditioned to breathe in a shallow way or to breathe erratically. And part of this has to do with the physiology of emotion. Hmm. When we were little, um, we didn't have the capacity to handle our feelings the way that we do now as adults. Infants, small children struggle to learn how to cope with some of those overwhelming feelings that they have. Think about a baby in a crib who's left alone, who is crying out and overwhelmed with a sense of anxiety or panic. Well, one way that that baby begins to learn how to inhibit feeling is by restricting breathing. Mm, mm -hmm. And what was once the full natural rhythm of breath can become shallow and constricted. It's a way of inhibiting emotion. And if this continues into adult, adulthood, people can be prone to experiences of anxiety, to feelings of panic, to feelings of low energy. And one antidote to that is to learn full, unrestricted, rhythmic breathing. And if you breathe into your belly, that will enable your lungs to expand fully. And if you do this in a rhythmic way, it actually stimulates a nerve, a bundle of nerves that runs from your abdomen up through your heart to your brain called the vagus nerve. And when you breathe rhythmically and fully, you send a signal up through the vagus nerve to relax. It turns on your body's relaxation response. It is the antidote to the stress response. Now, you give some great breathing techniques in this book. Talk, talk about developing these and, and writing about them. Um, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Well, breathing is actually one of the quickest and simplest ways that we have to transform how we're feeling. Mm. And I do offer a number of breathing techniques in the book that people can learn fairly easily. Perhaps the, the simplest is belly breathing. And the idea of belly breathing is that when you breathe in, uh, there is an expansion of the belly. And it allows the lungs to expand fully. And it stimulates a feeling of calmness, an overall feeling of well-being. There are also breathing techniques that help to stimulate us and help us to become energized and invigorated. There's one breathing technique called the breath of fire, which actually involves very rapid, forceful breathing, which activates our adrenals and gives us a very energized, enlivened feeling of awakeness. There's one additional breathing technique that's also an energizing one called the breath of joy. And that involves deep, rhythmic breathing combined with arm movements that get our energy flowing. It's a terrific exercise to do in the morning to help to prepare you to be refreshed and alert for the day. Now, all this, these breathing exercises lead naturally into the second part of the book, I think, um, because they help develop what you begin the second part of the book is looking at the mind, which is the sense of presence. A and this is also known as mindfulness. That's right. Um, many people who are depressed have real trouble living in the present. Mm -hmm. uh, often, uh, depression brings with it worries about the future, uh, rumination 
about the past. It's very difficult to be fully here in this moment. Well, there are practices that we can engage in to cultivate this ability to live fully in the present moment. Mindfulness, which you mentioned, has become more and more a part of how we work with patients in psychotherapy. It's also becoming a greater part of healthcare. And there are very simple techniques, some of which involve focusing on breathing. Mm -hmm. Our breathing is happening right here, right now, in the present moment. And if you take a moment to simply pay attention to your breathing, to notice the sensation of the breath as it comes in and fills up the center of your body, and then notice the sensation as the breath empties out of your body. By focusing on the breath, you can calm the mind and come into a fuller appreciation of this present moment. You know, one of the things I think that uh, is really important in this kind of writing is, you know, the language that you use to describe these kind of abstract concepts. You know, analogy is is one of them. So talk about just a, as a writer sitting down to write about something very abstract and difficult to describe and trying to explain that in a way to readers that they can get it. And I think that you do a very good job of that in this book. Thanks. It is challenging to describe some very subtle experiences in a graphic way that people can really grasp. Um, presence is, is one of those subtle qualities, mm -hmm. uh, being able to live fully in the present moment. And what, I'm, what I've tried to do is to give some very simple, practical activities that we can engage in to cultivate this quality of presence. So imagine for a moment, one of the exercises in the book is a raisin exercise. The raisin exercise. The raisin exercise. <laughs> and this one I learned from John Kabat-Zinn, who's one of the mm -hmm. foremost uh, exponents of mindfulness. He's done a wonderful job of teaching mindfulness to thousands of people. And in the raisin exercise, what we do is actually hold the raisin in our hand and look at the raisin and notice the color of the raisin and the shape of the raisin. We notice the wrinkles on the surface of the raisin. And then we hold the raisin up to our nose and we smell the fragrance of the raisin. And then hold it up to our lips and feel the sensation of the raisin against our lips. And then take a bite of the raisin and notice that sensation, the taste and the texture. And as we chew it, notice the sound. And as we swallow it, notice the feeling of swallowing. At the same time, we notice the thoughts that come into our mind, the feelings, the memories. So what we're doing is engaging our senses as fully as possible in this present moment. And it takes that kind of experiencing in a very rich way to be able to get this subtle idea of being in the present moment. So yes, there are many different activities mm -hmm. in the book to help people to become acquainted with these subtle experiences. And, and I like this, uh, this phrase here when you talk about, no matter what you are faced with, there's a gap between the stimulus and your response to it. And in that gap between the stimulus and your response is where you have the freedom to make a conscious choice. And I think this is what, what gets to the heart of 
presence is you have to realize that you are not, as you say, you are not controlled by the stimulus, that you have, you are making that decision. That's absolutely true. And what you just described is where our freedom resides. Um, what makes us happy is not so much what happens to us, but how we, we respond to mm -hmm. what happens to us. What makes us upset or depressed is not so much what happens to us, but how we respond to it. And when we can become very, very clear on this and pay attention to how that stimulus is affecting us and pause, really pause and notice, how do I think about what's just happened to me? If, uh, if I've uh, experienced something that's frustrating to me, how am I reacting to it? Can I choose to look at this in a different way? Is there another interpretation? How do I want to respond to, uh, to this uh, adversity in a way that will be empowering for me? So taking a moment to live in that gap and realize that, that that's where the freedom is can help to free us from depression. Now, um, talk uh, about... Um this kind of observing yourself uh, with with uh, depression and um, the the work of John Kabat-Zinn. Mindfulness or presence is a way to pay attention to what we're experiencing in the present moment. And when we do that, we also become aware of that capacity that we have to observe our immediate experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we go back to the raisin, mm -hmm. um, we're not only learning about the raisin, we're also learning about how we experience the raisin. Exactly. So there is this capacity that we all have. It's that observing capacity within us that we carry with us all the time. Oftentimes, we forget that we have it and we become reactive to something that someone says to us or we become upset about a problem and what we don't realize is that we have a choice we have a choice about how to respond and when we develop that observing capacity that's where we're able to really take hold of that freedom of choice that we have it's like a, as if a cameraman no the difference between a cameraman realizing he's operating a camera and becoming totally involved in what he's filming with the camera. That's exactly right. In fact, that, Rick, what you just described is a metaphor that one of my patients used as he was learning mindfulness, mm -hmm. that there's a cameraman up on a dolly who's actually filming the whole experience. And he is one of the, uh, the patients whose stories I wrote in the book. This is the story of Sal. And I'll, I'll briefly tell the I story. I like Sal. Because, yeah. <laughs> Sal's a wonderful character. Um, he, was, he was a tough customer uh, before he learned mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And he was actually quite depressed before he started to observe himself. Uh, Sal uh, owned a restaurant, and he was a real control freak, a real take-charge guy. And it was actually a very successful restaurant. Uh, however, he made everybody else around him kind of crazy because he was such a control freak. And in fact, he kind of pushed away some of his, the people who he loved the most, like his family members, because they couldn't deal with him. 
He was barking orders. He was highly judgmental, critical, and uh, he was being successful in one way with the restaurant, but he was really suffering when it came to the important relationships in his life, and he was uh, becoming more and more depressed as a result. In addition, he was having some uh, high blood pressure problems uh, that he needed to, to address. So I taught Sal breathing techniques, and instantly when he started to do the slow rhythmic breathing, he calmed down considerably, and he, he kind of liked that relaxed feeling. Once he learned the breathing techniques, I taught him some uh, meditative practice mm -hmm. for cultivating presence mm -hmm. and for learning that he could be sitting in meditation and he could be having a worry. One of the many things that he worried about, but he didn't have to actually worry about it, that he could just observe the worry without becoming consumed by it. At first, he thought this was kind of funny. Uh, but then as he practiced, he began to really feel empowered by that freedom to not become consumed in his own worries. Well, after practicing uh, mindfulness and the breathing practices for about four weeks, he had a situation come up in his restaurant. It was the end of the evening, and he was sitting down to dinner with his wife and his 15-year-old and his daughter. And as they were eating dinner, his his daughter reached across the table to grab a jar of ketchup and in the process she knocked her soda over and the the soda spilled and it was flowing across the table towards Sal and Sal watched this soda as it was migrating across the table kind of like a little tsunami that was making its way towards <laughs> the edge of the table and as it just reached the edge of the table his daughter yelled out dad you know, he, she screamed at him because she saw that he was going to get soaked, and he just sat there smiling. And he was, he was in fact soaked, and the ice cubes came flowing into his lap along with the soda, and he just smiled. And his daughter was all upset. She said, Dad, Dad, let me get you a towel. I'll get you another pair, pair of pants. And he just smiled. He said, it's fine, dear. It's absolutely fine. I'm going to be fine. And he did it on purpose. <laughs> and he did it to prove to himself that he really could inhabit that gap mm -hmm. between the stimulus and the response, that he didn't have to react, that he didn't have to get angry, that he didn't have to be judgmental, and that he could enjoy this experience um, and realize that he was truly free. Now, once you've achieved that kind of freedom, you, want, you talk about... Um, overcoming avoidance and um, tell us what rumination is rumination is brooding rumination is when you dwell on your problems and it's a real hallmark of depression many people who are depressed spend a lot of time in their heads they're worrying about all the things that could go wrong they're worrying about the things that did go wrong they're beating themselves up they're being self-critical they're being critical of other people and by staying in that rumination uh, not only does their mood sink but they often uh, stay stuck they don't get active and moving in their life one antidote to this downward pull of rumination is to get active so if you're depressed and if you tend to ruminate 
give yourself five minutes. And if you really want to try to figure things out, if you think that you might be able to solve a problem, give yourself five minutes. But at the end of five minutes, give it a rest and go out and do something. Take a walk. Um, do a chore. Do an errand. Call a friend. Um, read a book. Do something that will take you away from that rumination. Rarely is it helpful to spend time dwelling on an issue for more than about five minutes. You know, in Star Trek, often they'll have problems, and what they have to do, there's a famous phrase, reverse the neutron flow. That, that's it. <laughs> and that's exactly what you talk about here. That's what happens in the brain. Talk about the left-right brain uh, aspects and, and reversing the neural flow, the neural connection. There's a very interesting pattern that exists in the brains of people who are depressed and the brains of people who are not depressed, who are happy. Um, in folks who are depressed, there is more activity in the right prefrontal cortex. Now that is the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead on the right-hand side. And when people have excess activity in the right prefrontal cortex, they tend to do a lot of ruminating, worrying, brooding, tends to be a lot of dark thinking. Mm -hmm. In people who are happier, there's less activity in the right prefrontal cortex and more activity in the left prefrontal cortex. And this type of pattern of activity in the left prefrontal cortex goes along with what we call approach behavior. And by that, I mean moving towards the things that you're looking forward to. So getting involved with other people, engaging in recreation, pleasurable activities, work that you find satisfying. When you move towards those things, the left prefrontal cortex tends to be more active. When the right is more active, we're withdrawing, we're moving away from life, we're isolating, and we see that a lot in depression. One of the, the most powerful ways to reverse this uh, downward pull of depression is to take steps forward, to actively get engaged in your life. So Sula was right. We do need to reverse the neuron flow. <laughs> that was true. Now, um, you talk about uh, judgment, and I think this is something a lot of people have a, a problem with, is, is, is silencing the inner critic. And I, and I like your idea of uh, talk about the difference between judgment and discernment. Yeah, it's a very subtle and important difference. Um, all of us have an inner critic. All of us, from the time that we're little, we learn rules to live by. We're told to try our hardest, to um, stop crying. We're told to um, always tell the truth, to be kind to other people. And this is where how we internalize our values and our rules for living. And that critic tends to be uh, aware of those rules for living and let us know when we may be deviating from those rules for living. Now, um, having that self-evaluative process going on can be very, very helpful. Um, if we can look at our behavior and learn from it, if we can learn from our mistakes, that can help us to become better people. We can become more effective in our lives. However, sometimes that inner critic can become unduly harsh. And when we become overly judgmental, when we're hard on ourselves, that can predispose us to depression. 
when we learn how to come into a new relationship with that critic, that can free us from depression. I'm speaking with Jeff Rossman. His new book is The Mind-Body Mood Solution. Jeff, um, you, you talk about um, disidentifying from, from the critic. And I, and I like this idea is that you, you, you can even express your gratitude with a simple thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, like I said, we all have that critic. Um, we all have a running commentary going on in our head mm-hmm. that is uh, doing a narrative of what we're doing and how we're doing. And if you have a critic that says, boy, you really screwed that up, um, you can simply say, okay, thank you for sharing. Um, I appreciate it. I'll take that under advisement. And now I need to get back to work. So instead of um, letting the critic dominate you, instead of having your self-esteem be battered by your critic, you can come into a new healthy relationship with the critic. You can appreciate that, yes, the critic is trying to look out for you. Yes, the critic is trying to help you to, um, to be a good person and to lead a, uh, a satisfying life. But you don't always have to take every criticism as gospel truth, and you can talk back to your critic. Now, I think, the, for me, the chapter on developing forgiveness and gratitude, I think, was really strikes to one of the most important parts uh, of a approach to life. So, you talk about forgiveness. One of the things I think that's interesting is that you say that, um, tell us what you do and do not mean by forgiveness. That's good. Um, most of us have been told that it's good to forgive. Um, we're told that uh, we'll be healthier, happier as a result of forgiving. Um, and some people feel that forgiving means that they have to uh, be a doormat, that they need to uh, condone the actions of people who hurt them. And that's not what I mean by forgiveness at all. I don't mean uh, condoning uh, malicious behavior. Um, I don't mean that you have to let someone hurt you again. I think what we can do is we can forgive someone but also protect ourselves from being abused again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what I do mean by forgiveness is really feeling the hurt that was caused by that other person's actions, not denying it, but allowing ourselves to feel it, and then making a decision, making a clear-minded decision about whether we want to hold on to feelings of anger, resentment, hurt, whether we want to hold a grudge. Um, if we hold a grudge, we're not really hurting that other person nearly as much as we're hurting ourselves. A couple thousand years ago, Buddha said it very nicely. Um, if you hold on to your anger like a hot coal uh, with the intention of throwing it at someone, guess who's burned? You're the one who's burned, not the other person. So uh, forgiveness is a way of releasing the hurt, releasing the pain. And yes, we can forgive and at the same time protect ourselves from being hurt again. And the flip side of that is gratitude and expressing gratitude. And I think this is something that's it's easy to just spit out the word thanks, but it's, a, I think, a rather different thing to actually experience gratitude from within, to reach into yourself and say, yes, that really, I, I really did benefit from the help that person gave me, or I, I really did, this world is so wonderful, the, the trees are so green, it gives me such great pleasure. When you embrace gratitude, it enlivens your life. And 
It's one of the most powerful emotional nutrients that we have. Living with a sense that um, everything, everything in this life that we're living is a miracle, is a very powerful way to live. Einstein said it very beautifully. Uh, there are two ways to live. One is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is as if everything is a miracle. And when we live with gratitude, we appreciate those myriad blessings that make up our life. Uh, there's one very remarkable study done uh, of gratitude in which people who uh, were subscribers to an internet site and who were depressed practiced a gratitude exercise every day. And when they took time at the end of each day to think about what they experienced that day that they were grateful for. And when they wrote those experiences in their gratitude journal, over the course of a couple months, they became remarkably happier. They no longer shined, showed signs of depression. That was one simple gratitude exercise. There are other ways that we can express gratitude in our lives, like writing a gratitude letter. If you take a moment to reflect on someone in your life who helped you in an important way, who you have not yet uh, truly thanked, if you take time to write a gratitude letter and then deliver it in person, it's a tremendously empowering act for you. Uh, obviously, that other person will feel uh, tremendously gratified by uh, your expression of thanks, and you'll be uh, brightened by it. Now, all this leads to uh, what you call the practice of resilience, and you got about a minute to tell us about resilience, which is, I think, uh, the, at the end of depression, you're, you're ready to fight again. Well, the, the one thing that we can count on in life is that it will be unpredictable, mm -hmm. that we will face <laughs> <laughs> adversity of one kind or another. We'll suffer a loss. We'll suffer a reversal. Um, there will be some kind of pain and suffering in our life. Resilient people have the skills to be able to handle that adversity and bounce back from it. If you think about a, uh, a tree that is buffeted by gale force winds and can come back to its original stature, that's resilience. And there are a whole set of resilient skills that we can learn, like being able to accept our feelings, like being able to express those feelings to other people, reach out for help, believe in our own capacity to handle whatever life brings to us. These are qualities that can help us to deal with adversity that uh, at one time or another we're going to face in our lives. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Rossman. He's the author of The Mind-Body Solution, the breakthrough drug-free program for lasting relief from depression. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate this. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.